several weeks ago, I came across a very sad video. Uh, in it was the sort of short biography of this young married couple and their journey from a place of prominent prominence as worship leaders in a rather large church. Their success as Grammy-nominated artists and then their gradual decline in their in ultimate rejection of the Christian faith altogether. The interesting thing was as they described their change of perspective, they kind of identified exactly what the issue was with their, their problem, what the, the trouble was that caused their doubt to start as just a small thing that spread and grew and ultimately led to their rejection of the Christian faith altogether. And what it is, is they had taken and been taught a, a modality of Christianity that we would call the transactional method. In fact, that's exactly what they called it. Uh, you might be more familiar with it under the uh, power of positive thinking, uh, the idea of calling things into existence that are not, the idea of if you pray for things and you're a good person, God will give them to you. In fact, the woman, her, she herself said, well, basically what I understood was if I prayed enough, if I was good enough, and I did all those things you're supposed to do, like going to church, well, then God was going to give me those good things that I deserved. And so when they experienced difficulty, difficulty uh, being able to have a child, and even once they were able to have a child, having a child that was uh, born with Down syndrome, when they toured different countries and uh, saw the adversity that people in other cultures faced, something very unlike the American uh, church. They didn't really know how to explain it. I've had experience going to Honduras, and I can tell you from my experience there that the prosperity gospel has great influence in Honduras, a place that most people live on a dollar a day. It has just as much influence in Honduras as it does in the prison system. These are places you would think the prosperity gospel would be utterly disproved, and yet there it is. People believe it. They think if they do these things, these good things, that God will reward them. And so what happens is there's literally no room in their faith system for adversity. They expect good things to happen, and when difficulty comes, they basically look at it as there's something wrong with them. There's something weak about their faith. They wonder what they did wrong. There, there's no appreciation for the problem of evil, and so they are susceptible when evil takes place. When they see wrongs done, they have no, no way to answer it. And you know, as I watch this video, which by the way has been viewed nearly two million times now, and it's only been up for a few weeks, I realize that these, this couple... They had been given over to a self-willed, self-seeking, worldly faith dressed in Christian garb. It was nothing more than a sanctified version of secular Epicureanism. You may be familiar with that bumper sticker you see around town, if anything good can happen, it will. It's essentially that mantra for the Christian. 
And so when they experienced this difficulty, they were led astray. And the the thing that I thought as I watched this video was how sad it was that this couple had never been taught the beautiful doctrine of affliction. That they had never learned that sorrow is a part of the human condition even after Christ. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that affliction leaves. In fact, I I believe I can make an argument that because you're a Christian, you should actually be afflicted more than the unbeliever. But the thing that I could not escape as I watched this video was my fear that there are many Christians in our culture that are also given to this same thought process, that are prey for the enemy. And so my question for you this morning is, are you thankful for your trials? How do you handle adversity? You know, Romans 8.28 is a, is a solve to the soul. It's inescapable. It says, we know that God causes all things, that's all things, to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And so when you experience adversity, it doesn't mean God has ceased to be good. It means that you have yet to understand His goodness in the affliction. And so what we have is a disconnect between our theology, we know God is good, and our experience. How do I see His goodness in the midst of difficulty? And what I want to unfold for you this morning as we look at the Scripture is that the Scripture is absolutely chock-filled with instruction. The problem of evil for the Christian should not only not be a problem, it should be a source of great contentment, joy, hope, strength, and power. It should be a demonstration of the Gospel. Just as God has taken the thing which separated us from Him, sin, and has made it the vehicle by which He has clearly demonstrated to us and the world, to His angels, both fallen and those who are still with Him, that He is good, that He is loving, that He is trustworthy, that He is both the just and the justifier. God has also let suffering coexist with salvation for the believer in order to sanctify us. So that in the same way that God's glory is demonstrated through sin, not because He's the author, but because He uses it to reveal His goodness, so too as you are afflicted is the glory of God demonstrated as you yield to it, as you rest in it, as you absorb every blow of your loving Savior, and you see not that only you know He's good, but that you understand it experientially. You know that He is good. Every doubt is driven out of your heart. Every truth you have learned in your mind theologically is driven into your heart. And what is there of sin and self and self-will and independence is driven away so that you are basking in His goodness and you are dependent upon your Savior. The Scripture is filled with this teaching. To be honest with you, I could teach for several hours today and I would not even have scratched the surface. And so I'm going to try to do it in an hour. But I ask that you would look with me 
at Roman, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 to 11 and see some of the teaching that is so rich regarding our peace with God, our reconciliation to God. Let's read this together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Indeed, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we, are, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I want you to pay careful attention with me because I wanted to give you the context of this passage and I will unpack this this entire passage, but I want to specifically focus in on Romans 5 verses 3 to 5 and that will be the the area where we'll find our outline this morning. And in those three verses, I want you to notice first that the true Christian, the true believer in Jesus Christ will first of all embrace his trials in verse 3. He will then, in time, grow stronger because he was afflicted. And we see this in verses 3b and 4. And then finally, in the fifth verse, we see that the true believer is filled with hope because of the love of God. Put simply, as a sentence, the true believer will embrace trials, grow stronger when afflicted, all because the hope of God And the love of God fills his heart. That's what this passage teaches us. And it's a profound teaching. What's comforting is that this is not the only passage of Scripture that we can go to to see the manifold witness of the prophets, the saints of old, and the apostles teaching us that we are to embrace our sufferings. See, starting in verse 1 and 2, Paul, he, he's looking at the justification that has been given to the believer because of faith. We note that in the book of Romans, a gospel, the book of Romans is the gospel unfold. Paul shows us the wrath of God against the unbelieving Gentile, the wrath of God against the self-deluded righteous man, the Pharisee, in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, all stand condemned. And there's literally no hope for anyone except that God has sent Jesus Christ to be the just and the justifier. And we see in chapter 4 that this salvation that has been given to us has always been the same way. It's never been by works of the uh, flesh. It's always been by faith. 
So he looks at the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And in verse 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Therefore, verse chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, because all of this, because of this justification, we know we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through Him we have access into this grace in which we stand. And in this we rejoice. And we would say, yes, of course we rejoice. But see, Paul says, it's good that you rejoice. It's good that you rejoice that you've been saved. And even the unbelieving scoffer says, well, of course you would rejoice. You get everything you want. You were going to go to hell, now you get heaven. But Paul, he knows it's not enough. Our precious Savior knows that it's not enough for us to have a knowledge of salvation We have to know that we are saved. And the way that God does this is through affliction. And that's why Paul now rejoices in verse 3. Notice the first half. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. And why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Because the glory of God that we saw is now being brought to bear in our lives. We recognize that this is a strange statement to the uninitiated. We know that the worldly or the secular response to affliction is to avoid it, to have a stoic response, the firm upper lip, to endure it, to have the, in our culture, the more normative response, the Epicurean, excessive hedonistic response to essentially dull yourself with the excesses of the world in order to not know or see or feel the pain that is all around you. But that is not the response of the Christian. No. He does not only endure trial, he embraces it. Notice the word, notice this word. Not only that, but we rejoice in. We rejoice in our sufferings. We do not endure our sufferings. We do not wait for the clock to time out. We embrace, we, we salivate in it, we bask in it. Just like a tough piece of meat thrown into a crock pot, it has to marinate. It has to be broken down. And we recognize that that is what God is doing. We see that the council of Scripture is consistent. Look at James chapter 1, a passage familiar to us all. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. We see such an agreement in the text. There's so much similarity between both Paul in Romans 5 and James in chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Their language does not contradict, it complements. One of the ways that we embrace trials is to take this counsel. One of the ways that we embrace trials from an elemental level is just to do something that is unlike us. James here says to count it all joy. You, you may be entering into a test. You may be entering into a trial. You may even be in one right now. And for you, you're looking at it and you're wondering when it will stop. I've been there before. When will this stop? 
When will it cease? And you're not alone. You're not alone. If you read through the Psalms, how long, O Lord? How long? Is a refrain that you'll see again and again. Did you know that of the Psalms, over 44% of of them are laments? Even the one we read this morning was a lament. The the Scripture's filled with lament. It's filled with sorrow, but... What is it that we do in counting difficulty joyous? We say something that is not, and then we make it real. We make it life. We take this thing which is not what we would like, and we say, well, God says to count it as joy, so we pray. We go, as the psalmist did, to the Lord, and we ask Him to change us, to change our perspective. We recognize if God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, then the issue is not a lack of goodness of God, but a lack of me apprehending His goodness. And so there's something that has to change. I need to count this as good. I need to to change. And it's gracious that our Father does this. He does change us. He he transforms us. He doesn't just allow us to endure. He strengthens us to endure properly. He doesn't just tell us to count it all joy. He teaches us how to count it all joy. He doesn't just give us a commandment. He also gives us a purpose. He doesn't, he doesn't just say to change the way you think and the way that you see. He strengthens, strengthens us to do so. You know, there are many ways in which God transforms His people, but I want to look at just three different things that He does in teaching us His purposes and trials. And all of these, I believe, will be familiar, but I want to give you some categories to sort of understand and apprehend what it is that you might be facing now or have faced in the past or will encounter in the future. My hope is that you would have a robust understanding of the doctrine of affliction, understanding that it is for your good so that you would not be tripped up. As a matter of fact, you may recall... Uh, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 and how the, the soils were the issue, not the seed. The seed was cast, the seed being the gospel, and it hit different types of soils, one being a pathway where the birds came and ate it up and it had no fruit, another being shallow dirt where it sprang up quickly and it had joy. And then when the sun came and scorched it, it burned out. Another being the seed that fell on the thorny ground, the thorny soil, it sprang up. But because of the troubles of life as our Savior taught us, the joy of that fruit was choked out. But the final and most fruitful soil, the one that bore 30 or even 100 fold, was the one that had been prepared. See, we are in the business of preparing our hearts to receive the soil, to receive the seed, excuse me, to receive the seed of the good news. And so it's important that if you're in a trial, you understand how to think correctly. And if you're not in a trial, that you prepare yourself so that you would not be like one of those who is choked out or burned out by the troubles of life, not surprised by affliction, but in fact becomes one who can say, I don't know how to rejoice, but I know I should. And I hope this will help you to learn how to rejoice. So the first thing that we need to see is the corrective suffering that takes place. And this is one of the purposes of God for the believer, for the saint. 
This is a difficult one to understand, but it's so beautiful when you really understand it. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, a passage we're all, I hope, familiar with. And if not, I hope you'll be encouraged this morning as we read it. Just this week, I went to visit a man in prison who had just recently been incarcerated. And this was the passage of Scripture I took him to, and he wept as he realized the love of God for putting him in prison. Uh, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by Him. For those whom the Lord disciplines, those the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subjected, subject to the Father of lights and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So you may be experiencing an affliction, and it's always important to start with the purposes of God and discipline when we are entering into times of difficulty because we need to examine our hearts. You may be suffering for righteousness' sake. You may be suffering for God's glory to be put on display. You may be suffering for the sake of other people, but you should still always examine yourself and ask yourself this question, am I suffering because of my disobedience? Am I suffering because of some sinful pattern in my life? Am I suffering because of some foolishness that I have yet to repent of? Because God is graciously disciplining you as a child. Now, as I met with my friend this week, I was able to look him in the eyes and with great confidence tell him, this is for your good that you've been incarcerated. All discipline at the moment seems uh, seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, but this is the key. This is what I said to him. But for those who've been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Listen. You could be going through difficulty and not yielding. You could be just enduring it, having that stoical upper lip, that epicurean excess feeding your flesh, trying to forget how hard it is what you're experiencing. And listen, it won't stop. It'll just be another lesson that's a little bit more intense. He'll take something else away that you love of this world, of your comfort, to just go a little bit deeper in revealing the idols of your heart. It's a gracious thing to be disciplined by God. We say this to our children, it's a good thing that you have a mom and dad who discipline you now because there will be a day where you're disciplined by God and this is preparation for that because while I discipline my children 
and not even with always wisdom, not always without anger, we have a Heavenly Father who will discipline us for our good and will do so perfectly and wisely. Preparing my children to be able to endure the trials and the afflictions and the disciplines that God is going to bring to bear in their life. And my hope for you and the hope for them, and certainly my hope for myself, is that I'm examining myself and yielding. One of the things that is just so profound in the Scripture is when you see men like Job who suffered for righteousness' sake, seeing how sinful they still are. Righteous. Job was righteous. When, when all of his friends said foolish things, his mouth was still pure, and yet at the end, God rebukes him because his perspective about who God was was still wrong. One of the wise lessons I learned years ago from the book of Job was that when we get into difficulty, we so often ask the question, why? Why me? Why God? When the real answer that we should be seeking is, who is God? That's the question that Job See, Job asked why. His friends said, well, it's your sin. Job, Job said, no, it's not. I, I haven't sinned. Why? And he never got an answer. Never. And But when God confronted him, all he spoke about was who he was. And what was Job's response? He repented. He covered his mouth. He had no defense. He was guilty because he had failed to see who God was in his glory. You know, when I think about the discipline of God, I'm absolutely in awe of the message of the Scripture and the love of God, the patience of God. You know, David was a man probably far more righteous than any of us. A man who wrote many of the Psalms. And yet, he transgressed against the Lord. He uh, took Bathsheba into his home and then he covered his sin and had her, her husband killed in battle. And here's the thing that's just shocking. For a year, he continued to walk in, in this sin without repentance. For, for that entire period, he was just going along, going through the motions, going and doing all the things externally that they would expect the king to do, but his heart was far removed from God. I wouldn't be surprised if he had made offerings to the Lord in that period of time. And so when he was confronted and Nathan the prophet pointed to him and said, you are the man, and David's eyes were opened and the flood of sorrow entered his heart, and he turned to the Lord and he prayed out and cried out to him. He prayed in Psalm 51. Just turn there for a moment. If you, if you enter into a period of, of discipline from the Lord, this should be a psalm that you turn to. In Psalm 51, David repented and he prayed, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. 
Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That's the response of the man who has been trained. You could read on. It's a powerful psalm. When David was afflicted, he turned to the Lord. He repented. He said, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 67 says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. See, the thing that God is working out and working into us through affliction when it comes to corrective discipline is He wants us to see His goodness. He wants us to see His goodness. David witnessed it. He saw God's goodness. The writer of Hebrews wants you to see the goodness of God. He is treating you as children. It is much more fearful that you will be given over to do whatever you want. That's actually the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1. You'll be given over to whatever you want. That is the most fearful thing that could ever happen. But if you experience corrective discipline, it is hope. It is hope for you. There is hope. He's still treating you as a child. You might still belong to Him if you will yet repent because He wants you to see His goodness, that He's a loving Father. The second thing that we see is that God will often bring suffering into our lives simply to demonstrate to us His glory, not only for us, but for others. And this may be one of the reasons why many Christians suffer. You could be walking in a right way. You could be doing all the things that you're supposed to do. You could be examining your heart on a regular basis, and yet, this is not heaven. And one of the things God wants to get driven into our hearts is a love for heaven and a hatred of the worldly comforts we so trust in. See, Job, he was afflicted so that God could prove to Satan he would never reject God. Jesus, he suffered. He laid down his life for us and is a pattern for the way we ought to live. In John 16, verse 33, he said, These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. One commentator put it this way, The one to whom we cry when we cry out in pain knows our pain because suffering of some kind was his experience from the moment of his birth until his final breath. I don't know how else to drive this home for you. We take for granted the the advent of Christ so often. We forget that every waking moment of his life was utter sin, was surrounding him, was utter suffering for him. An illustration that I have found helpful is that of a... Have you ever been to a a smoking lounge at the airport? 
probably you didn't go into it, but you know how they have smoking lounges set aside at the airport so that all the people who need to smoke will have somewhere to smoke so it's not in the, the, uh, the, co- the, the courses where everyone else is. So there'll be these little areas along the way and you'll pass by them and there's this heavy glass door and the, the room is just filled with smoke all the way to the top to the ceiling, these 20-foot high ceilings with the fan that's sucking this smoky air out. And all the people in there, they're smoking, they're, they're waiting for their flight and puffing away. Now, if you ever are walking by one of those and you just walk by when the door opens up, it's overwhelming, the smell. But I want you to imagine for a moment taking your child, a young child who has never been a smoker, of course, and taking them and saying, I'll give you a dollar if you can walk in that room and, and stay in there for a whole minute. How many of you think your child would be able to stand in that room for any period of time before their face would turn green and they'd want to run out and get fresh air? I think for many of us, even if you have smoked, going in that room would be overwhelming. Well, now imagine that and think about Christ who is without sin. The Creator of the heavens and the earth came and dwelt among us, walked around us, and was permeated with every fiber of his being with the existence of sin continually. Every day of his life was suffering. And ultimately, he laid down his life for us so that we would be with him in glory. And so for that reason, we read in Philippians 1.29, and this should help our attitude about suffering, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul makes a word here. He created this word where it says granted. The idea we should get is that it's been grace gifted to you. What Paul's trying to convey is that you've not only been given salvation, but you've also been given this great privilege. You get to suffer. You get to suffer just like Christ suffered. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why we rejoice like we see in Romans 5 and James 1. We, we rejoice because it is a privilege. We get to suffer as our Savior did. So not only in this suffering are we getting to join with Christ and become more like Christ through affliction and suffering, but this is so helpful. We get to take our focus off of ourselves and recognize that the suffering that we experience is not just for us, it's for others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 puts it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, this is one of the ways that perspective can help us to start to see that our suffering is not just for us, but it has these great purposes. It's for other Christians, those who are going to be suffering in the same way that we have. As we receive the comfort of God and we are trusting Him and we are walking through it, there are other people who are watching our lives and are being encouraged. I can't tell you how many times probably the most comforting thing for me has been to be around Christians who have suffered mightily and have continually entrusted themselves to Christ. I learned so much from them just watching their lives. I didn't even really have to ask many questions. I just watched the way that they endured, the way they continually entrusted themselves to Christ. And as I've noticed these things, I've also seen that the lost take note. 
See, for the lost man, it's not, it's not surprising you'd come to him and tell him that he should be a Christian because of the, the, the hope from hell to heaven. But when you come to the lost man and he watches your life and he sees the way that you endure difficulty and you don't act like him, you don't respond in the same way, but you embrace it, you, you savor it. You, you see its purposes. That's strange. And it's a demonstration of the gospel and the lost will see it, take note, and be saved, perhaps. They'll certainly be warned. But when we suffer well, we put God's glory on display. We prove Satan to be a liar. See, Satan has told us or caused us at the original fall to question the goodness of God. When we suffer well and we embrace Christ and we are dependent upon Him, our lives are a demonstration to Satan that God is good. We believe His promises are good. We believe that He is trustworthy, that He only has our good in mind. So all these different ways that God brings about suffering takes us back to our outline and where we will spend the remainder of our time in Romans 3 to 5. See, we have... We have seen that the true believer embraces trials, but now in verses 3 and 4 we see not only does the believer embrace trials, not only does he receive the the correction that may come because of sin, not only does he recognize the salvific purposes of God and the glory of God that can be demonstrated through his suffering well, but he also recognizes something so significant. He recognizes that suffering produces good character. He recognizes that the hope that was present because of the justification of the believer in verses 1 and 2 is now going to be caused to go deeply into his soul so that suffering will produce endurance, endurance, character, and character hope. Now, let's look at these words because the, the words here have some pretty powerful meaning when we, when we look at them carefully. Now, the first word is the word perseverance or patience, endurance. It's translated several different ways because it has such a, a, a deep and profound meaning. But the, the full meaning of to persevere, again, is not merely to endure, but it has a specific meaning. And we see it when we look at the word just prior to it, suffering. There are many different words in the Greek that can describe this idea of suffering, but the word specifically used here is giving the idea of being pressed down. And the, the word is that of a tool, like a sledge that was used to press down the stalks of grain in order to separate the chaff from the grain. It's like the tool that was used to crush olives in order to extract the oil or grapes to extract wine. And now when we see that that's what suffering is, and now perseverance, the word here for perseverance means to be under, to be below, to abide in, to live in place. When we put these things together... The commentator Boyce puts it this way, if we take these words together, we will understand that perseverance in this context literally means to live under difficult circumstances without trying to wiggle out from under them. 
It means that we will endure affliction and not attempt to escape from it. I can't tell you how valuable it is to know this. I, 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 there have been so many times in my own life where I have been in the midst of a difficulty and have sought comfort in this world and the trial never went away. I, I tried to move, go to a different place and the trial was still there. I tried to change relationships, but I, I found new relationships, but I had the same if issues with people that I had before. One of the things all of your, prom- your problems have in common is you. So there's no escaping the difficulty of what's in your heart and what God is doing when He is teaching us in affliction and trials character is that He doesn't want us to try to escape from it. And so what there is, is there is the reality that God is going to press these truths into our hearts so that we learn hope, but there's also the reality that we need to be willing to embrace them. We need to be willing to abide in them. We, We need to try not to flee from them. And that takes effort on our part. This, this, this character that is being developed in us, sometimes translated experience, comes from a Greek word which literally means to be tested and approved. Paul uses the antithesis in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says that I beat my body into subjection so that when preaching to others, I may not be disqualified from the prize. So the the idea of character in Romans chapter 5 is that of having been qualified or approved. And the illustration for this word, the, the way that this word was used in the parlance of its day was that of a coin that was qualified to be use, useful for purchasing items. In this time, in this era, one of the ways people uh, used to uh, try to make an extra dime was they would take the coins that passed in circulation and they would cut and trim the edges of the coin and the coins were easily malleable and you would just take a pair of uh, metal snips and cut a, a corner off. And sure, surely over a period of time, as these coins pass through circulation, so much of the coin would be cut off that a merchant would receive it and say, this coin's not weighty enough. It doesn't meet the measure for what it's marked as. It's disqualified. It cannot purchase the goods that you want to purchase. That's the idea here. See, Paul is wanting us as believers to be qualified to have character, to have a sense of gravitas, of weight about us. And as we endure these faithful trials that God graciously brings into our lives, we will draw closer to Christ, become more Christ-like, and become men and women of great value to the kingdom of God. We will not be disqualified, but qualified. We will have a quantity about us of holiness that is palpable. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says that in this, our trials, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may be, result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed." 
Just as this golden coin would have its corners cut and eventually have no value, when we stand the test, we are not only qualified, but we are also proven. See, one of the things that's so powerful about this text in 1 Peter, and one of the reasons why we ought to rejoice when we encounter afflictions and difficulties, is not only because God is treating us as His children, not only because we are getting to see God's glory on display through our lives, not only because it's for the sake of other people, but because God wants you and me to know that we belong to Him. One of the purposes, the most powerful purposes of affliction is that you get to have assurance of your salvation. Just as this chair is something I would go and sit in without any question, the reason I can sit in it without any question is because it's been tested and approved that it's a chair I can sit in and it's not going to break. But what if this chair was put together in a haphazard way, the screws weren't screwed, and there had been no quality test, and I went and sat in that chair? Wouldn't I be, would I be surprised if I fell and the chair was broken and it was no good? I would be surprised, because I have looked at all these other chairs. They seem to be suitable for sitting in. What God is doing in afflicting you is ensuring that you can stand the test, that you can be proven to belong to Him, so that when He sees you, you know that you belong to Him and He knows you belong to Him and the believers around you know that you belong to Him. Peter gives us uh, this illustration in this passage about the refiner's fire. And one of the things we know is that a refiner would take metal and he would melt it down and in the process of melting it down, the impurities would rise to the top and he would come and he'd clean out the impurities. And the thing he was doing while he refined the metal was he was looking to remove all the dross And once the impurities were removed, you know how he would know the metal was ready to be cast? He would look down and see if he could see his reflection. And once he could see his reflection, that uh, gold had been completely purified and could now be formed and molded into something valuable for uh, being used. And that's what God's doing in our afflictions. It's one of the reasons why we can embrace our affliction, our trials, recognizing that God is building in us character. And that, that takes us to our final point. We've seen that what God is doing is true believers embrace trials and causes them to grow stronger is that He's filling them now with hope. And we've seen this. It's really the theme of this passage of Scripture, Romans 5-11. to See, this hope that is realized through trials becomes real. And how does it become real? Well, look with me at verse 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Who is it that has been teaching us so far? Who is it that has written the Scripture? It was the Holy Spirit. And what is the Spirit's work in sanctification? He's teaching us through the Word. He's teaching us through watching others' lives. And He is teaching us personally through affliction. The great comforter is taking the truths of Scripture and driving them deeply into our hearts. And as He does this, then He expels the sinfulness of our heart, the dependencies that we have in this world, the selfishness that we have, the longings that we have for this world rather than heaven. As He's pushing these things out and He's pushing deep down into our hearts, a love for Him. 
And so our hope is not merely technical. It's not simply looking to heaven. It's something that's experiential. We're experiencing it firsthand. We are recognizing God loves me. He is good. He's treated me as a son. He has disciplined me. God is good. He loves me. He is allowing me to be put on display for the sake of His glory, for the sake of my brothers, for the sake of the lost. God is good. He doesn't want me just to remain as I am. He is transforming me. He is making me more into the image of Christ. You see, we can only be cheerful about suffering when we grasp the tie between suffering and this present grace and the glory that we await. It's connected. I think it's fascinating that Romans 5, 1-11 is kind of like the, the gap that's missing when you read Romans 8.30. You know Romans 8.30. We know that those He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. When you look at that, you you see that before time, He called you. He made you His own. He's made it in time that you'll belong to Him. But there's something missing between our justification and our glorification. What is it? Now, our sanctification. Well, it's right here in Romans 5, 1-11. It's right there. God is building in you character. He's teaching you hope that's looking to glory. He's teaching you hope through affliction. And now He's reminding you that that hope is valid because you look at the hope that you have in Christ. Look again at verse 6. Why do we have hope? Because while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We, We look at verse 11. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. There is this three steps or three descriptions all describing our hope. It's a hope looking ahead. It's It's a hope that is realized in time. And it's a hope that looks back to the completed work of Christ. It's a a hope that is experiential in our lives through affliction. It's a hope that we can stand upon that is grounded because we can know that Christ is risen. Again, verse 25 of chapter 4. He was delivered for your trespasses and raised for your justification. I can stand on that. That's the middle ground that's missing between justification and glorification in Romans 8. This is where God does it in the trenches. God sanctifies us. He improves our hope. He improves our perspective by teaching us through trials to hope in such a way that the love of God is poured out lavishly in our hearts. Perhaps you've heard everything I've said and you're still not helped. And that's, that's completely okay. Because this is a lesson that we're always going to be learning. It's a lesson that we need to hear again and again. But I don't want you to lose hope in, not, in the understanding that the Scripture is saturated with the knowledge that we all struggle with this truth. We all struggle with the problem of evil. We all struggle with understanding why evil takes place. We can't understand sickness. We can't understand health uh, complications. 
sadly, many of us can't help wondering when the next trial is going to come and what it's going to look like. And wondering if we're going to have the grace sufficient to withstand it. What I'd say to you is that the scripture is so filled with hope. It, it, as I said before, the, the, the scripture is filled with lamentation. It's filled with examples of men and women who fell short, who sinned like David, who were righteous and suffered like Job, who were righteous and did nothing wrong and yet saw incredible turmoil in their days like Jeremiah. And while all of these saints experienced affliction, the thing that we need to take from them that is encouragement is that all of them turned their sorrow to God. They did not just internalize it. They, they didn't just endure it and bear under it, but they embraced it. They, they, they went to that ground where Romans 8.28 takes us, and they reckoned God's goodness to their account. They wrestled with it. In Lamentations 3, we, we find a man who is watching the most horrendous evil that's taken place in the history of Israel. It's happening all around him. And he wants to teach you. And so what does he do? He, he writes a book, five chapters, four of which are laid out in a poetic acrostic so that you can memorize them. So that you could think deeply about suffering and so that you could change your mind to think correctly. And it's some of the most profound words uttered in all of the Scripture. In Lamentations three twenty three to 25 the writer says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. This is not a foolish hope. This is not a hope without logic. It is a hope made sure because you have rested on God's goodness. So many of us being in a church like we're in where we hear gospel truth week in and week out, we hear doctrinal truth day after day, we struggle with applying it to our lives. Well, rest assured, God will see fit to apply it to your account so that you will see His goodness. One of my favorite stories in the Scripture, and this is where we'll end, is the story of Joseph. Joseph, a man like us, human flesh, a man who recognized that God had called him to something great, told his brothers, told his father, and his brothers, they hated him because of it. And so they betrayed their brother. They sold him into slavery. The question I have to ask you is, when he was sold into slavery, when he was thrown in that pit and he was looking back up at his brothers and begging for them, pleading with them to let him out, do you think he understood the purpose of God at that moment? When he was pulled out, put in shackles, sold to the Ephraimites, and was walked down that long walk through the wilderness down into Egypt, do you think he understood the purpose of God? When he remained in his integrity and pure, and he did not seek, uh, cease from seeking the Lord, 
and was taken from a position of lowest servant to the highest servant in the home of Potiphar, how do you think he responded when in his integrity he never gave in? Potiphar's wife was throwing herself at him, and he never gave in. He stood in his integrity. And you think, who was watching? His parents were nowhere to be seen. As far as he knew, he would never see them again. As far as he knew, he would never return to Israel. As far as he knew, perhaps God wasn't with him. Maybe God wasn't even real. And yet, in that affliction, in that trial, in that temptation, he remained in his integrity and resisted. Can you imagine how shocked he was that he was now thrown into prison because of a false accusation for something he never did? Something he did all in his power to resist? And what do you think it felt like when he was in prison for those many years, when he was forgotten in that prison, even after he had been able to uh, give the interpretation of the dream of the servants of the, uh, the, the highest power in the land, the king? He was forgotten still for at least another year. He was forgotten. He was forsaken. So there he was. And yet... He remained in his integrity and he rose to a position of being the highest man in the prison. And then when he was brought before the king of the land, when he was brought before Pharaoh and he prophesied as he did and it came to pass and Pharaoh made him the highest man in the land, he made him the prime minister. Do you think that at that point Joseph understood what God was doing in his life? He'd stood in his integrity. He'd remained faithful. He had continued to face the test. And here's the thing that's amazing. Don't you think that God could have done the same exact thing just by picking Joseph up in the whirlwind, carrying him to Egypt, laying him before uh, the, the uh, Pharaoh and saying to Pharaoh, this is your prime minister. Do as, I tell, as he tells you. Listen to him. You see, the providences of God are just as miraculous, if not even more miraculous, than the very miracles of God. And what God is working in you and me as He works out this salvation deeply in our souls, as He, through the providences of, the, of uh, our day-to-day mundane existence, is testing us. He's proving His work in us. He's making us approved workmen worthy of our Lord and Savior. He is preparing us to walk the streets of gold. And when, when Joseph was restored to his brothers and he wept with them and he was restored to his father and brought his family into the land of Egypt, I think he understood what God had been doing all along. Because after his father died in Genesis 50-20, he turned to his brothers who now feared for their lives, feared that revenge would come upon them, that surely Joseph would kill them. He turned to his brothers and he said, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you not have more of the Holy Spirit than Joseph? More instruction from the Scripture? Don't you recognize that what God is doing And your affliction is not only making you more like Christ, but He's also causing you to be a conduit of His grace, a microphone of the truth that God is good. We can't just endure trials. We need to salivate in them. We need to embrace them. We need to love them because it is good for us that we suffer. 
There's no more important, no more subtle test of your profession of faith than this. How do you respond to trials? How do you respond to troubles? How do you react to tribulations in this life and in this world? There's no more sure way for you to know without a doubt you belong to Jesus. And this is the good work He is doing in you, in us. Amen. Lord, we thank You for this morning. I know this is a weighty thing to consider. I thank You that there are so many evidences, so many testimonies throughout the Scripture of Your goodness that You want us to recognize that our hope, it's real. Our hope is real. It's true. And we can know its truth. That We can know its reality. We can understand in a deep and profound way how good You are and proclaim Your goodness to all that we come across when we embrace the difficulties of life and we love You more than we uh, love this world. When we love You and we yearn for Your returning. When we remember that this place is not heaven. This place is not our home. But we do have a task while we're here. And it is to make Your glory known so that we would be ready to give a good account when we stand before You and we would be able with clear conscience, with confidence to walk the streets of gold. God, I thank You that You are working in us this salvation. I thank You that You are teaching us Your goodness, that You are working it into us through discipline. You're working it in us through recognizing and giving glory to You for the sake of the lost and for the redeemed. And You're working it in us by making us have the character of Christ and making us like Joseph, a man who was approved by You because he never gave in. He was dependent upon you. May we be dependent upon you as well. Amen.